For a little over a decade, online dictionaries have been choosing um, a word of the year. Dictionaries like dictionary.com, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, Oxford Dictionary. Um, They're choosing a word which they feel summarizes the cultural moment. So here's the words that they have chosen for the past five years. In 2018, it was misinformation. In 2019, it was simply the word they. In 2020, Oxford Dictionary chose unprecedented. That was used a lot that year. Other dictionaries chose pandemic. In 2021, any, any guesses? Vaccine. Okay. And in 2022, um, this is Oxford Dictionary, and somebody needs to tell them this is two words and not just one. They chose goblin mode. I had to look up what that was. Um, so if you don't know, look it up. I, I do like Merriam-Webster's choice better, which was gaslighting. But if you had to, if you had the job at one of these online dictionaries to choose the word for 2023, it hasn't been chosen yet. They choose this at the end of the year. If you had to, the job of choosing the word that summarizes our cultural moment, what would you choose? Which word would you use? You know, every morning, I, I typically flip to the um, widget screen, the today's screen on my iPhone. You have to swipe right to get to it, at least on my phone. I don't know how yours is set up. But it, but it has like this picture from a day in the past. It has the little calendar widget that tells you what's coming up in the day. But on mine, I also have a news feed. And I don't know about you, but my newsfeed, at least 90% of the stuff there, if I, as I scroll through the headlines, have to do with some sort of conflict, either a war somewhere around the world, maybe in Ukraine, uh, some kind of political infighting or fighting, some kind of conflict, literally 90% of the stories. P- perhaps it's based on the algorithm of what I click on. I'm not sure. So if you get like fluffy bunnies and kittens and uh, cooking recipes and stuff like that in your newsfeed, then perhaps it's just me. But if I were to have to, if I had that job at one of those dictionary companies to come up with the word for the year, the word that I would choose is conflict for 2023. Conflict. Why? Well, let's look at the definition of conflict. Sharp, serious, or angry disagreement I guess we're having trouble with the slides this morning. But sharp, serious, or angry disagreement between people or groups. Angry disagreement. Have we seen any of that lately? If not, well, you haven't been on Twitter. You haven't been on the Nextdoor app. You haven't tuned into cable news TV. And you certainly haven't been in a situation where you're working with or managing people. Conflict is everywhere that we look. It's saturating the world that we live in. There's geopolitical conflict, first and foremost with the war in Ukraine right now. There's racial conflict. We've we've witnessed this rise to a boiling point in our own nation in recent years. According to the Department of Justice, the majority of hate crimes in America are racially motivated. There's personal conflict. It's estimated that... here in America, we will spend close to 450 billion, not million, billion in legal fees in 2023. 450 billion dollars in lawsuit costs. 
To put this in perspective, there's 195 countries in the world. 161 of those nations have a gross domestic product that's less than what we spend in legal fees in America. 82.5% of countries, gross domestic product is less than what we spend here in the United States on legal costs. A subset of this personal conflict is marital conflict. Almost 50% of marriages in America will end in divorce. And of course, there's political conflict, which seems to be getting worse and worse in our nation because of the monetization of polarization. Simply put, politicians can raise more money for their causes and to get elected by misrepresenting truth, stoking anger and fear against the other, and creating conflict. They can earn more, get more money that way to get into power. So perhaps of all the beatitude statements of Jesus, the one that we will examine together today, blessed are the peacemakers, is the most applicable to our cultural moment. Blessed are the peacemakers. Conflict, angry disagreement characterizes almost every aspect of the world that we live in. And unfortunately, I can attest to this as a pastor, it even infects the church regularly. Why? Because we're all broken people. We're all broken people. We all have our past traumas, our, our way of seeing things that differs from somebody else's way of seeing things. We all bring brokenness into the room. And when we put ourselves together like this, even when we're doing good purposes like ministry, ministering to our, commu- to our community, worshiping Jesus together, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be misunderstandings. There's going to be hurt feelings. And if you've been with us over the past month, you know that we've been going verse by verse through Matthew chapter 5 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins his sermon with eight provocative culture-shifting statements, which serve as perspective recalibrators for us, inviting us to see and align our lives with the kingdom rule of Jesus. Our culture would say blessed or fortunate are the ones who are able to own their opponents or get their own way or win their arguments, succeed in their litigation. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus has called us to something different. Jesus has called us to live in a countercultural way, a way in which the world would look at us and scratch their heads and go, that is different. That's not how I respond. That, that is totally foreign what I see in the world around me. Well, to understand what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, we first have to ask the question, what is a peacemaker? So I'm going to say that question out loud since we don't have a slide. What is a peacemaker? Okay, you're going to be my slide presentation this morning, okay? I'll just call call on you and you repeat after me, and they're supposed to see that up on the screen. Got it? Got it. Okay. The Greek word translated peacemaker for us is used only once in the entire New Testament, and that's right here in Matthew 5, 9. So you might think that it'd be hard to translate since it's just used once in Scripture, but it's quite straightforward. Much like the English translation, it's simply a compound word that combines the Greek word for peace with the Greek word meaning to do or to make. Literally, one who makes peace. And although peacemaker is an uncommon word in Scripture, 
its root word, peace, is, is very common. In fact, in the New Testament, it's used 92 times. And it, it means um, wholeness, particularly when used in the context of, of relationships. It means um, or signifies harmonious, whole relationships. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament word for peace is the word, you probably heard it, shalom. Shalom. It also communicates wholeness. It literally means wholeness physically, emotionally, and most importantly, relationally. Kay Arthur, who's well known for her inductive Bible studies, puts it this way. The Greek word for peace signifies harmonious relationship and therefore refers not simply to the absence of war, but to the presence of reconciled relationships. It's not just a truce. It goes a step beyond that. A truce is you just stop fighting. But peace, biblical peace, means that we've experienced reconciliation. Where there was once conflict, division, disagreement, misunderstanding, there's now a fully reconciled relationship. So here's our working definition of a peacemaker. It's one who takes responsibility for reconciling broken relationships. Can you say that out loud with me? One who takes responsibility for reconciling broken relationships. That's our definition. One who takes responsibility for reconciling broken relationships. But how should you and I as Jesus followers go about doing this? How do we go about reconciling broken relationships? In other words, how do I become a peacemaker? I'm glad you asked. Does the Bible have any instructions on how to become one? Yes is the answer. So much like we did a few weeks ago, and a few weeks ago when we studied Blessed Are the Meek, we're going to bounce over to another passage of Scripture before we return to Matthew 5, 9 to wrap things up. And the passage that we'll be camping in for the majority of our time is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. If you have a Bible or an electronic copy of it on your phone, go ahead and bring that out because I want you to see it. Uh, we won't be seeing it on the screen this morning, but I want you to see it in your hand, all right? If Hebrews chapter 12, 14 through 15. In these two verses, we'll discover four instructional steps that God gives us toward becoming peacemakers, people who take responsibility for reconciling broken relationships. So let's read from Hebrews chapter 12 together. Strive for peace with everyone. This is verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Okay, time out. Let's pause right here because here in this first phrase is the first instructional step for becoming a peacemaker. Strive for peace with everyone. So what's step one? If you're taking notes, write this down. I'm going to have you repeat it after me. Make every effort to pursue peace. Step number one of our four steps for becoming a peacemaker. Number one, what is it? Make every effort to pursue peace. Say that out loud. Make every effort to pursue peace. The author of Hebrews is suggesting that peacemaking doesn't come naturally. You have to work at it. You have to pursue it. It has to be strived for. Why? Because our natural response to conflict is going to be either fight or what? Flight. The fight response to conflict immediately goes towards self-justification and typically looks like this. 
First off, we attempt to prove that the other person is wholly in the wrong, that we are completely in the right, and that we are totally justified in our anger. Secondly, as our anger festers, we play tapes in our head of, how dare that person do this? What right do they have? Thirdly, and this is optional but typical, we pick up the phone and vent to other people, hoping to get them on our side and commiserate with us and take our position and take up our cause. And lastly, we tend to escalate the conflict in some form or fashion. That's the fight response. The flight response is opposite of that, but equally as damaging in the long run. A flight response to conflict does the opposite of escalation, at least initially. This response runs away from the conflict, sweeps it under the rug, makes every effort to simply avoid the issue. Through a flight response, we might succeed in smoothing things over and keeping peace, but it never makes peace. And there's a big difference between keeping peace and making peace. A flight response keeps peace through external politeness and shallow cordialness. But on the inside, what's going on? You're probably still upset. You're probably still bitter. You're probably still angry toward that other person or that group that you had conflict with. And that doesn't match the biblical definition of peace, does it? Remember what it was? What's the biblical definition of peace? Well, you didn't see it, so let me go back. The biblical definition of peace is wholeness in our relationships, wholeness in reconciled relationships. So, peacekeeping can actually be the enemy of peacemaking. Only peacemaking results in true reconciliation, true restored relationships, and healthy community. This is why God's word consistently calls us away from both a fight response and a flight response to conflict. And instead, consistently calls us toward making every effort to pursue peace. For example, the message in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, is very similar to what we have here in Hebrews 12, 14. It instructs us, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. Strive for it. Well, how do you know? We have to pause here and say, okay, well, how do we know if we've made every effort to move towards peace, to pursue peace in the midst of conflict? How do you know if you've done enough? Well, here's how you know. Humbly ask somebody who's mature in the faith if they think you've done enough. Somebody you respect, go to them and say, hey, here's the situation. Have I done enough? Do you see anything else that I could do to, to bring reconciliation, restoration to this brokenness? Don't be the one to say, well, I think I've done enough. Because usually when we think we've done enough, we haven't done enough yet. You need to get someone else whose emotions are not engaged in the conflict to take a look at it for you and help you evaluate if you've actually made every effort to pursue peace. In fact, I've got some, um, or I've had some unresolved conflict with a person in my life for, for quite a while now. And I think I've done enough. But as I 
was preparing my message this week, it struck me, I wonder if I have. I wonder if I have. I wonder if there's something else I could do. I'm having lunch with somebody this week that I respect who has knowledge of this situation, and I'm, I'm going to ask them, have, do you think I've done enough? Is there anything else that you see that I could do? Another verse that comes to mind here is Romans 12, verse 18, which reads this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. This verse indicates that even if you strive towards making peace, sometimes it's not possible to live at peace with everyone. It says, if it's possible, which means sometimes it might not be. So making every effort to pursue peace is not peace at any cost. It's not enabling an abuser or staying in an abusive relationship. It's not letting people say whatever they want to say or never confronting untruth or unkindness. It's not compromising righteousness or truth or purity because all of those things are also essential components of kingdom living. But if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace, live at peace with everyone. You know, some helpful advice that... um, I've heard in in this um, context, as far as it depends on you or striving for making every effort to live at peace is this, to always own what you need to own in any conflict. Even if your part of the conflict seems super minor or really small in your own mind, even if the other person is 95% of the problem, what's the 5% that you can own? It always takes two to conflict. What's the 5% that you can own? What's the 5% that you can ask forgiveness for? Again, I'm not talking about instances of abuse, okay? But instances where there's conflict. What's the 5% that you can own? The 5% you can lead with in your attempts to reconcile with the other person, to ask forgiveness for, and then lead with that. So, step one. Make every effort to pursue peace. Say that with me. Step one, make every effort. Oh, we have it. Hey, there it is. All right. Make... They've been scrambling back there. I've been watching them. So thank you, guys. Uh, make every effort to pursue peace instead of reverting to fight or flight. Peacemaking does not come naturally. It has to be strived for. Here's a, here's a quick applicational question. Are you a person who's more known for making your point or making peace. To make every effort oftentimes means we have to let go of being right. We have to let go of that insatiable need. <laughs> Did you just nudge him? Like, okay, okay, he was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have to, <laughs> they were giggling up here in the front row, so I figured something was going on. But um, you have to. You have to sometimes let go of being right. I, I have that insatiable need to prove my point. But biblical peacemaking elevates another person over our pride. Okay. If that wasn't convicting enough, let's move <laughs> to step two. <laughs> okay. Um, 
we can find this second step towards becoming a peacemaker in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, starting with verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You know, I don't think the ESV is the best translation of the Greek here. A better translation would say, see to it that no one fails to grasp the significance of God's grace. The author of Hebrews is saying here, don't miss God's grace. Don't overlook it. You've got to grasp it and its implications for your life in order to become a peacemaker. Why? Because peacemaking derails when we fail to remember the grace that we have already freely been given by God ourselves. So here's instructional step number two towards becoming a peacemaker. Remember the amazing, say this out loud with me. Remember the amazing grace that God has freely given to you. Remember the amazing grace that God has freely given to you already. Before we have any hope of making peace with someone else, we've got to first remember that God has made peace with us through the sacrifice of his son. You know, in our sin, where did we stand? We stood at enmity with God. We stood as enemies with God. And yet, what happened? When we were in conflict with God, when we were the ones who initiated the conflict, what did God do? He graciously took the first step towards us. And it was a costly step that involved sacrifice on his part. How did God make peace with us? We're about to see a, or experience a, a visible representation of it here in a little bit. But how did God make peace with us? Through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on the cross. What undeserved favor. What amazing, overwhelming, radical grace. A peacemaker armed with the radical grace that they've been given by God readily extends that same radical grace and undeserved favor to others in the midst of conflict. A peacemaker reflects God's peacemaking character and peacemaking actions and makes the first costly move towards the other person. Makes the first costly, self-sacrificial, grace-saturated step towards reconciliation with the other person. And my friends, this is not natural. It's supernatural. Our natural response is the opposite of this. It's self-defensiveness. It's digging our heels in instead of graciously laying down our need to be right and moving towards another person with the grace that we've been shown. It's supernatural. This is why the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace. We can't do it on our own. This is why we have to regularly put our noses in the word of God so that we're reminded of the grace that we've been given through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. And God reconciled us to himself through Jesus. And as we let that saturate our hearts, the spirit fills us and begins to control and influence the way that we respond when we get our toes stepped on. What you are filled with spills out when you get bumped. Are you filled with the Spirit? And when you get bumped, does peace spill out or something else? So, 
Instructional step number two, remember the amazing grace that God has already freely given to you. Our next instructional step regarding becoming a peacemaker is found as we move on in verse chapter or verse 15 of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Let's read this again. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up. That no root of bitterness springs up. What's the opposite of bitterness and resentment? Love and forgiveness. Forgiveness. So here's instructional step number three. Move towards forgiveness instead of bitterness. Say that with me. Move towards forgiveness instead of bitterness. And this step is the most difficult because it will always cost us something. Grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, is always costly to the giver. Remember, for God to extend forgiveness to us, what had to happen? A sacrifice on his part. Jesus had to bear the weight of our sin in our place on our behalf instead of us. And so to be the conduit of that type of grace and forgiveness to those around us, what does that mean for us? Forgiveness as peacemakers automatically means that you and I have to absorb the loss, take on the debt. We bear the weight of it. You never just forgive somebody and move on. Forgiveness is never free. It's always costly. And yet we're instructed in Ephesians 4.32 to forgive how? As we have been forgiven. And it was a costly forgiveness. We must move towards forgiveness rather than bitterness. Now let's read the rest of verse 15, Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Don't, don't forget the grace you've been given. So that no root of bitterness springs up and what? Causes trouble and by it many become defiled. Here's the point. Failure to immediately extend God's grace in the midst of conflict results in bitterness. I want you to notice the progression here, okay? There's a progression in this verse. Failure to extend God's grace results in a springing up of bitterness in the heart, which then does what? It causes trouble. And usually drags a bunch of other people into the bitterness of unforgiveness with you. Unreconciled conflict, my friends, is like a cancer. The longer you leave it unresolved and unreconciled, the more it grows and the more damage it creates. So here's step four. Step four towards becoming a peacemaker. Step one, make every effort to pursue peace. Step two, remember the amazing grace that God has already freely given to you. Step three, move toward forgiveness instead of bitterness. Say this one, this fourth one out loud with me. Never let conflict fester. Never let conflict fester. It's like a fast-growing cancer. Notice the language that the author of Hebrews uses about bitterness here. It springs up from the root like a fast-growing weed. The longer you wait to move towards reconciliation, the more damage and trouble unresolved conflict will create in your own life and the lives of those people around you. And if conflict is going on in the context of the church body, the longer it sits, the more destruction it will create to the unity of the body. 
This is where Matthew 18, 15 comes into play. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If someone in the church sins against you, go to them. Go to them. That's the first step. Most of the conflicts in the church will probably resolve themselves if we followed this instruction. Not all, but most. But more often than not, we talk to others. We find people to take up our cause. Conflict grows and damage to the body results. So how do we become people who take responsibility for reconciling broken relationships? Let's review our four steps. Say these out loud with me. Number one, make every effort to pursue peace. Step two, remember the amazing grace that God has already freely given you. Step three, Move towards forgiveness instead of bitterness. And step four, never let conflict fester. Okay, now that we're armed with some practical steps towards becoming a peacemaker, let's flip back to our passage. Flip back to the beatitude in Matthew 5, 9 and wrap things up with a promise that's connected to this beatitude. What is it? Blessed are the peacemakers. What is it? For they shall be called sons of God. Notice the promise it isn't they will become sons of God. No. Peacemaking is not how we gain salvation. That's by grace through faith in Jesus. But the promise is that we will be called sons of God. Why? Because sons resemble their father. The Greek, trans, Greek word translated son here refers to anyone sharing the same character or nature as their father. So even though it's a masculine noun in the Greek, it equally applies to female believers. We will be recognized and called sons, children of God when we resemble the nature and character of our Heavenly Father. And peacemakers will be called sons of God. Why? Because God is a peacemaking God. God is a peacemaking God. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Colossians 1, 20. He made peace. How? By the blood of the cross. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is a peacemaking God. And our only hope of becoming peacemakers is through the power of the good news that I mentioned earlier. The power of the gospel that God has already taken the first step towards reconciling our broken relationship with him. God, the peacemaker, made peace through the blood of the cross with us. And we were 100% responsible for the conflict. So as the worship team makes their way back to the stage, we're going to close with a visible and tangible reminder of what God did to reconcile us to himself. In worship services all over the world, the church gathers, and one of the things that we do regularly as a body, we call it an ordinance because Jesus ordained it with his original disciples on the night before he went to the cross, he reinterpreted two elements of the Passover meal, the blood, or the, the cup that he said, this is the blood, the new covenant in my blood. 
drink this in remembrance of me. And the bread which he broke, he said, this is my body broken for you. They probably had no clue during that meal what, it was, what he was referring to, but they would re- realize it the next day and in hindsight that he would lay down his life. His body would break on the cross. His blood would be shed for the remission of sins. And the words of John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, began to echo in their heads. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We have a peacemaking God who made peace with, blood, with us, the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. I'm going to pray for us, and afterwards, Brett and the worship team are going to lead us in a couple songs. As they do, I invite you to come to the table. We're going to gather in groups about 10 around each table, and when one group is done, sit down, next group, replace them. As we remember and reflect on the fact that our peacemaking God has made peace with us and then calls us to be his representatives, his ambassadors, as it were, in the world for peacemaking. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the way that you have made peace with us. And you call us to step towards others with that same grace, to be conduits of your love, your forgiveness, your grace. So easy to say, God, it's so hard to do. Lord, you know I have failed at this. We stand in need of your grace continually. We stand in need of reminders of your grace continually because we're still broken people. But Father, we invite you We invite your spirit to fill us, even as we reflect on these elements of the um, body and blood of Christ. Would you remind us and fill us with your spirit anew so that our lives are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. We need you, Lord Jesus. Amen.